Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hello, I'm Susan Violante. I'm your host for today. I'm really excited to be speaking on the phone with Julius Bailey, author of Racial Realities and Post-Racial Dreams, The Age of Obama and Beyond, an honest look at the current state of our society and a definitely wake-up call for America. But before we start, let's learn a little bit more about Julius. Julius Bailey is a Christian existentialist who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at Wittenberg University. He is a philosopher, cultural critic, social theorist, and diversity lecturer. As a socially conscious academic, Dr. Bailey has been interviewed on CNN, Fox, BET, and ABC Nightline. A guest on numerous radio shows as a social critic and education advisor, he is often sought to speak at colleges, prisons, and community organizations across America. For more information on Julius and his book, visit his website at www.juliusbailey.com, and that is J-U-L-I-U-S-B-A-I-L-E-Y.com. Hi, Julius. How are you doing today? Good afternoon. Thank you, Susan, for the interview. Oh, thank you for being here. Um, our reviewer loved your book. And uh, Paige had a lot of things to say about it, too. She was um, very interested on the topic in the beginning, and in the end she was really happy she read the book because um, it had clarified so many things for her, from politics to racial issues to her own issues, <laughs> if you may. Mm-hmm. Why don't we start by um, telling our listeners a little bit about your background and upbringing. Sure. Sure. Well, I am from the south side of Chicago. I grew up primarily in parochial Catholic schools, I um, was a son and I was a grandson of a Baptist minister, and so you know between being very active in my local parish and going to my granddaddy's church on the evenings and during the week, I guess you can say I was sort of very inculcated by uh, by at least these two forms of Christianity, namely of the Baptist Church and the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I think um, growing up um, with that type of, of sort of spiritual background really assisted me to at least come to understand what it means to be a, a moral being. Um, then when you couple with sort of my influences growing up in terms of um, the pastors and priests who influenced my life were very politically and socially active Ministers, and so I grew up watching how the pulpit and politics intertwined. How um, individuals who consider themselves leaders within the church also had to ensure that not just the Bible or whatever they were preaching with from the pulpit spoke to their spiritual being, but also the Bible and their instruction had to speak to their their sort of daily social realities. And so I think. You know, with that background, then I left my high school, then I went to college in Washington, D.C. at Howard University, one of the nation's sort of most preeminent black colleges in America. There I learned a little bit more about what activism is, what um, justice looks like, being at the home, you know, Thurgood Marshall, for instance, right, Mm -hmm. our first black uh, Supreme Court justice, and other individuals uh, um, who, who fundamentally helped me to understand what it means to be, you know, an agent in the world who who, who concerns myself with the doings and sufferings of, of folk around me. And so I took that Howard experience 
I, I then went to Harvard for graduate school. That's where I went to, to start to work with Cornell West. Um, and um, I, I was able to do some teaching with him, uh, under him as a teaching fellow. Mm-hmm. And then um, I left after uh, after American Studies degree and then I went to get my Ph.D. from the University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. You have such an interesting background. Um because you were you, you were lucky to be influenced with the topics that now interest you. Mine was totally the opposite. We we were an Italian immigrant family in South America, mm. and um, my family uh, mixed well with the culture and races and everything. So I have cousins that we look totally different. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. So um, so I never had issues. Um, I never lived or heard about racial issues until I came to the U.S. Sure, sure. And and it was really surprising to me, and also it was a small Catholic um, community, and so a missionary Italian Catholic community, and so everything was different. And then when I left, is when all the cold showers started to fall, that woke me up with many things. And um, I am passionate about philosophy. I took um, in college my major in political sciences and took. Um, classes on uh, theology and sure. philosophy, sure. so um, you can bet I'm going to read your book. <laughs> <laughs> I just haven't had a chance yet, <laughs> but um, uh, I, I, you know, I kind of experiment with my reviewers, and then if they like it, I'll read it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but um, what really, really caught my attention when I read your bio is that you, you call yourself a um, Christian existentialist. Yes. Okay, and uh, I know Christianity and existentialism are kind of opposites in many (laughs) ways. (laughs) So uh, can you tell our listeners, uh, you know, what is um, Christian existentialism? Right, right. Well, I I mean, they certainly can diverge. So, I mean, you you aren't uh, incorrect there. I think um, I get my sort of understanding of that term or that genre of identity through uh, a philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. And Soren Kierkegaard was a 19th century um, a philosopher who uh, considered himself an existentialist, but also a devout Christian. And so for him, and then for me later on, now obviously living in the 21st century, I think it revolves around understanding a couple different things. One is, is that our existence precedes our essence, right? And so that that is countervalent to a lot of spiritual ideas, right? Because you you know, you hear stories of Jeremiah that he'd say things like before uh you were born I knew you, right? And so the and then we learn, you know, live in your purpose, live in your calling, those type of, of languages, right? And so we you know we get used to that and God ordained your life and things like that, right? And so you think well, I have something that already was supposed to be my journey, was always supposed to be my fate, if you will. And, and the existentialist don't believe that. The, the, the existentialist maintains that our life and our journey is constantly evolving and that our destinies, if you will, are self-made and self-created. And it's not that we're necessarily opposed, at least I am as a Christian an existentialist, I'm not opposed to a doctrine of um, of God in this sense, but I am sort of, I don't believe that my essence 
was ordained before I lived. I think that if that's the case, I have a thousand questions for God, right? I mean, <laughs> if it is the case, I mean, why couldn't I have been born Italian, right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, why is it that God has put me within a context like this, born in 72, within an America? Luckily, I was born in 72 and not 42. Or, yeah. You know what I'm saying? But, I mean, still, you know, what is it like to say, well, you were born black in America, and that identity holds not only historic problems for the American consciousness, but that problem will not end, right? So I have to sort of keep reminding myself that I can't think God ordained me to this thing. I have to think that I, I have to live my life in such a way that I construct and reconstruct, I make and remake who I am as a being in the world. That's the, that's the first thing. The second thing, you know, when it comes to church, that's like one of the things that existentialists have problems with that obviously the church doesn't is that the idea of dogma. Right, and so what is it that dogma does for the psyche and spirit uh, that doesn't allow for the freedom? Right, so one of the um, pure sort of tenets of existentialism is freedom. Right, one's ability to choose one's own fate, to decide one's own actions, to have autonomy in a world that is potentially absurd. That is to say, that even in spite of whatever it is I claim that I want to do or I can do, I'm always up against either other people or I'm always up against other structures that that hinder that particular agency, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's always this sort of push and pull with my visions, my ideas, my hopes, my dreams up against the way in which other people have their ideas and hopes and dreams, right? Mm -hmm. And so you know, the Christian existentialist realizes that um, we understand that there is a God. We feel that there is a power that um, was a creator, for instance. We're not scientific in the sense that uh, we believe that there is purely a Big Bang reality. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, that is not antithetical to us, but we certainly uh, believe that, that there could very likely be an original creator, a first cause, cause, if you will. It's what um, they call intelligent creation. An intelligent creator, exactly, right? And so I think, you know, I, I maintain that. But when I go to church, for instance, and I joke with students all the time, you know, I go to church, you know, because I recognize that there's a culture associated with it. There's, a, you know, a religion, right? The etymology is that religere, and ligere means to bind, right? And that binding of individuals, that binding of like spirits, that binding of like ideas. And I appreciate that, right? I, I mean, I don't want to be alone, right? One of the things, one of the things that the existentialists always fight up against is a sense of isolation, a sense of loneliness in a world, even though everybody's there, right? Right, not you know trying to you know trying to come to grips with who I am and 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 what is the purpose of my existence as I keep keep creating it mm -hmm. up against the world that sometimes it doesn't allow me to be that right so I think that's where it diverges I, I personally think that you know when I hear stories of the Bible for instance or other Quran or or other Torah right what I think of is not just truth qua truth, right? That is to say, I don't think everything is, you know, the rational Julius is saying, well, you know, am I actually going to live or die on the ultimate truth of these stories, or am I going to realize that there are, there is truth within the story, 
Right. And so as we understand these stories and these allegories and these, you know, the findings and these, you know, the the movements of, of Jesus, for instance, or Ma, even Muhammad or, you know, you know, you know, we say, well, there could be truth in that and and, and moral stories and, 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 and prescriptions toward individuals and how we treat one another are important. And so for me, as I've lived my life during these years, it's important that I had that background. It's important that I grew up both Catholic and on the weekends with my granddaddy, <laughs> Baptist, right? It's important to have wine at the church and grape juice, right? <laughs> because at a certain level, you're able to see and understand just how different people can see the same God differently, yeah. right? And so it's not a competition of whose God is better. It's an understanding that we're living a cultural reality, not necessarily an epistemic reality. Mm-hmm. Very, very well explained. And... um I think that a lot of people in the end evolve a little bit if they get out of their nest and, you know, or they actually uh, have an awakening in some sort in different aspects of their own beliefs because of a traumatic experience. Mm. And I grew up within um, the the second one because my parents were um, survivors of World War II, so mm. there was a lot of post-traumatic stress in my uh, family. Um were you did you evolve in this point of view this vision that you have um on how you process beliefs and culture or was there a, like an aha moment for you somewhere i think it 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 probably was an evolution right and maybe and an aha moment right so when i think of the ways in which i mean the ultimate question for me is everybody can't be right right <laughs> and if everybody is right then everybody's right about an aspect of the truth, mm-hmm. right? So you can't, for instance, as my granddad used to say, you know, uh, if the Bible is right, then everything else is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but, you know, remember our belief in the Bible is a belief, right? So even if we follow the logic of that, if the Bible is right, the if part still is, is sort of unclaimed, right? <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, yes, as Christians, we believe that the Bible is, as as we learned in Bible study, the basic instruction before leaving earth, right? We understand that, right? <laughs> but we also realize that these are stories of people who, in many cases, weren't even there at the time, but heard stories of stories. And, and these are stories of stories of other stories about individuals who may or may not have actually lived on this earth, right? Mm-hmm. And so you think about it and you say, well, wait a minute. So if if they're right, or if the if if the Buddhists are right, if if there is reincarnation and not necessarily you know this idea of heaven or hell, then one of us has to be wrong, right? <laughs> and so it just began to realize, wait a minute, wait wait wait, hold on, let's understand this culturally and not as ultimate truth. Let's understand this that that even if even if there is one God. And this one God had a son named Jesus, and and Jesus suffered and died and was buried. Even if that was ultimately the case, Jesus has to have some understanding for those in other parts of the world throughout history that existed before Jesus and existed <laughs> in, in context in which Jesus is not a part of their cultural milieu. 
right? Yeah. And so it just began to make me think that maybe I need to not be as oppressive in my understanding of Jesus. If I truly follow Jesus, follow his, his 11th commandment, which was to love everyone, right? And, and, and if it's about love, then it's about expanding who we are as humans, realizing that as long as whatever it is, that, however it is that you serve, whatever God you serve, that you're in the business of spreading love, I'm good. Right. Yeah. And so that's that's how I came to understand it. And so that's why, for instance, even this book, right? So it is fueled, you know, obviously by a Christian writer, but it 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 takes a lot of time. For instance, in chapter four, and talks about the reality of xenophobia, right? I mean, what is it? Do we actually look at when we're concerned about other people, how other people live in other communities, in other um, worlds, with other religions, right? And so we have. So, so somehow as Christians we have to hate Muslims? Like that makes no sense, right? And and so I, I think uh, for me it becomes both an aha moment intellectually, but I, I evolved into it just as a human in the world. Awesome, awesome answer. I think it was in freshman year of high school. I asked um, the our priest that was uh, teaching us theology, and I asked him, you know, well, why... Why are there so many religions if God wanted us to believe only one? Mm. And he he told me, his answer was, well, God manifests in so many different ways. Mm. How can only be one theory that explains him? Mm. <laughs> and um, that, you know, that answered it for me. Okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, get it and don't get it, If you think about right? it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get it and don't get it, right? I mean, that's not a good answer, Father, but... Yeah, no, <laughs> but it, 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 it kind of answered me but because it's, it's basically what you said. You know, what about the people that came before, right. Right. you know, the time of Jesus Christ? Right. Or what about the people that are living in the Amazon and they don't know sure. about anything but their surroundings sure. and what... You know, and and it is true. I mean, of course, people are going to explain their surroundings and you know, in their own points of views, right. with their culture and their own experiences, and maybe evolve into something else, or maybe not. Right, right. And, so, and one of the things, obviously, Susan, one of the things that that we as 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 existentialists do diverge away from others is that you know we are at least at least I am as a Christian. I am concerned about, or at least still in query about, the idea of heaven and hell, mm-hmm. right? And so for us, right, life is what life is as we live, right? Anything outside of that is an irrational activity, right? And so as a philosopher, I just want to engage in whatever it is that I can claim to know, right? Anything that I can't claim to know to me is pure faith. I'm okay with faith, obviously. I, I take these, as, as Kierkegaard would say, these leaps of faith. I have no problem with these leaps of faith. But at the same time, I don't have to leap all the way to heaven or leap all the way to hell either, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it could be simply the case, as Shakespeare says, I mean, only only thing we are are basically the operator of the flesh. I mean, you know, the, the worm's affections, right? Mm-hmm. And upon death, that's who we are. The worms just take over who we are, 
right? And so, and so we hate to think that, right? I mean, the hardest thing about what it means uh, to live is to think about legacy, to think about where we might go and what we might do. We don't want to have conversations thinking that it might be literally over on that death date, right? And everything else about our body, everything else about our reality becomes literally what the Bible says, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, yeah. right? And so it, it becomes... And then in the classroom is an interesting dynamic because if you follow the logic, right, if the pastor tells you at, at funeral and at confirmation, for instance, that, that, that we all are from ashes and we all will end at ashes, if that's the case, then, you know, how do we have, where does this soul thing come from? Right? Where does it come from? Where does it go? How does it leave? When does it leave? Yeah. Right? All these rational questions that we have, which outside the fact that we're hoping for something next, really makes no sense. Inside Scoop Live is a global internet-based broadcast specialized in interviewing published authors about their current books and their areas of expertise. Join us and hear both well-known and upcoming writers talking candidly about their life experience as well as the business of being an author in today's literary world. Always interesting and current, we strive to bring our audience high-quality discussions that spotlight a vast diversity of authors in the field today. Our interviews are available 24-7 through direct podcasts, as well as MP3 download from your computer for your convenience. Please visit us at InsideScoopLive.com. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Today I'm talking with Julius Bailey, author of Racial Realities and Post-Racial Dreams, The Age of Obama and Beyond. Stay tuned because we are going to continue this interesting, enlightening, and inspiring conversation with Julius about Christian existentialism, hip-hop versus philosophy, American politics and racial issues, and so much more. But in the meantime, you can check out Racial Realities and Post-Racial Dreams by visiting Julius' website at www.juliusbailey.com, and that is J-U-L-I-U-S. B-A-I-L-E-Y dot com. I think about, you know, for instance, the death of Prince recently, right? And so you think that, wow, you know, look at the life he lived. And you hear people saying, well, you know, Prince is going to be in heaven playing with Michael Jackson and everybody else, right? <laughs> and you think, well, that's a beautiful thought, right? Or, yeah, that would be an awesome concert. That's a nice thought, right? Or yeah. Prince is just dead, right? I mean, yeah. that's it. Right, and so the the, the 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 more rational thought is it's over, right? Anything else is just hope, and I and I think one of the things that, that that as Christians we are we're locked in the hope, which is partly why this project is what it is. You know, the racial realities and and post racial dreams. It is a project of hope. It is understanding that the irrespective of whatever sort of empirical data that I have on race relations, on international relations, on America as an imperialist nation, uh, irrespective of the empirical evidence 
to the contrary, I still believe that America can be better because its people can be better. And when its people can be better and we operate, you know, uh, with each other as 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 ends in themselves, as you say, and not just means toward an end, I think that we America can be a better place. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. And you know when. I grew up in a, also, I, went, I mean, I'm a cultural mess. I, I, I went to school in Venezuela in an American school, uh, first grade, second, and third, and that's why I learned how to speak English mm-hmm. uh, from a young age. And, um, you know, even though there weren't very deep lessons in, you know, at that stage in, in my education, I could see the difference in cultures um, wherever I went. I mean, I went to a German school, I went to an Italian school, I went to a Venezuelan school, and that was my parents' vision because they were so locked up in their world when Mussolini was there mm-hmm. that when the Allies came, um, there were all different cultures within their army, they stopped fighting. They they didn't know where they were. They You know, the people that didn't have any contact with the other with the outside world were baffled and lost because they realized they didn't know anything about the world. And so, and how it functioned. And so, my mom had that vision, and she wanted us uh, to learn culture different from ours, sure. so that uh, we didn't go through what she went through. And so, um, when I came here, you know, it, it, even though I was familiar with everything, it was still a cultural shock. But the most cultural shock that I had was when my first daughter went to um, uh, college. She went to Colorado College, which is a liberal art school. And she told me she signed up for hip hop class because <laughs> mm, mm. in my mind hip hop is music. Right, right. You know, I didn't see it as a as a way of life, philosophy, uh, culture. Sure. Uh, I didn't see it. That was you know, it was music. That's you know, we would hear some hip hop down there and and you know, other than salsa <laughs> and, right. and stuff. And you know, it didn't occur to me. And she explained it to me, and so. I, I would like to touch that hip hop versus philosophy. How do they relate? Mm. Topic and why should we attend your hip hop course? <laughs> wow! Yeah, because wow. it was such a. I am blown away by it. Even recently, with Beyonce's um, new video, uh-huh. Lemonade. Lemonade? Is yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I was. Limonada. Um, lem- yeah, <laughs> limonada. <laughs> I loved it because I saw so much historical um, African American history, uh, and even theology. There were, um, um, you know, from philosophy. I could relate to a bunch of stuff that she had in her video, mm-hmm. and and I couldn't understand it if it wasn't through the eyes of my daughter. Do I would have never. So I think it's um, uh, it would be enlightening to to listen to you talk about. How they relate? How how uh, can what we many thought was a music trend is really a lot more? Right. Well, wow. I mean, I didn't expect that one, but that's cool, right? So, I mean, clearly, three of three of my book projects have had to do with hip hop, right? Mm-hmm. The the, um, you know, the cultural impact of Kanye West, my philosophy of hip hop book, and Jay Z hip hop's philosophy. And before you continue, I want to tell our listeners to please visit your website to check them out along with Racial Realities and Post-Racial Dreams, which is an awesome book, um, to your website. It's www.juliusbailey.com, and that is J-U-L-I-U-S 
B-A-I-L-E-Y.com. Yes, yes. Thank you very much. So I think, you know, my my understanding of hip-hop is that we, we, we have to see hip-hop as a sort of an organic development from a, a very specific set of social and political uh, and racial realities that um, primarily was taken form in New York, but it wasn't exclusive to New York, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you think about, you know, what was going on at the time and you couple in various other recent historical realities at the time. So if we, you know, historically we see hip-hop at around in 1976, right, the origin of hip-hop. And so at this time, obviously, you you, you know, you, you have now the children of those, of those of the, of the civil rights folk who are now sort of benefiting from non, uh, non-segregation and things like that. Uh, but in cities like New York and others, you start to see the more and more the mass exodus of of resources from the inner city to the suburbs, right? Mm-hmm. And in this sort of exodus of resources, uh, you you begin to see a sort of a um, a relinquishing of um, of social. Of the, of the safety net, if you mm-hmm. will. Um, and so what hip-hop speaks to is, one, a, a, an America in general, but again, thinking about its origins, an urban America who sees itself as a blight on the sort of the radar of America's consciousness, who everybody wants to run away from and not run toward. And so the language, the music, the dance has all to do with combat, right, with battling, Mm -hmm. with voice, with identity, right, with connection, right? And so these type of this. These ethos, if you will, these ethos is all the plural, but I mean, the, <laughs> the, the, the way in which the ethos comes together is through responding against social, political, and racial angst, uh, and still trying to, as the great grandmaster Fly says, trying to stay from from going under. Right? Mm-hmm. He said it's like a jungle. Sometimes it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Right? <laughs> how do I keep from allowing? these social, political, and racial realities that are adversely affecting communities, especially urban communities, whether it's drugs, whether it's violence, whether it's, it's, it's the occupation of police forces, whether it's, it's the lack of jobs or, or the movement of jobs, the growth and the development of, um, of housing communities known as quote-unquote projects. Uh, and stacking people on top of each other, not spreading them out, right? How, do, you know, how does this fit within the psyche of people? And so I think hip-hop speaks to that in its origins, right? As it's developed over the years, right, now it has to respond to an America who likes to look inside. I think it was uh, the rapper Common who says, I'm going to open up my mental window so that you can come in. And if, white America, you are afraid to come in, then you can just peek in, right? So if you don't want to step into the hood, if you will, uh, you are curious about the doings and sufferings and activities of black America because if you weren't, then you wouldn't have been, as you have been over history, uh, capitalized over the culture of black people. Right, and so there's always been an interest in black bodies. Whether we, you know, we're talking about black bodies through, you know, the, the imperial 
times, trying to use them as fodder to build your nation, or whether we're talking about the use of black bodies for entertainment, uh, both from slavery, post-slavery, into this conversation now, or in this sense, you know, how do I understand or how do I seek to understand what it is that these black and brown bodies chiefly are saying in these urban areas about their condition? So, so when you then look at what philosophy is, right, at least what, you know, and all the various sort of branches of philosophy, from ethics to religion to epistemology, the study of knowledge to metaphysics and all these areas, you're trying to say, well, look, all these individuals live a reality that try to find some epistemic force. How do I come to know whatever it is that I come to know? There are certain moralities that are consistent within hip-hop culture that we need to speak about. And it's not just the Wu-Tang morality, cash rules everything around me, right? And so, because again, that's an American sort of a, a capitalistic ethos, not just American, but a, a capitalistic ethos that cash rules everything around me, right? So it's not, that's just not hip-hop specific, right? So I think what we do in philosophy and hip-hop is to understand what, how do we, how do we develop truth? How do we understand morality? How do we come to deal with our phenomenology, the way we see the world, the way we experience the world, up against how then we operate within our experience of the world? Uh, obviously, there is a hip-hop aesthetic, right? As you say, the dance, the music, the mm -hmm. DJing, you know, those are the aesthetic forms of hip-hop that has sort of value that even you in your South American context can understand with salsa and merengue, and, 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 you know, and, uh, and, and, and so those type of sort of African-centered dances that is rooted within a colonial experience mm -hmm. uh, um, that, that still finds itself uh, um, to be as authentic as it can be even amongst um, a colonial reality. And so all this stuff plays into, you know, I, I, you can't look at a hip-hop battle and not see um, a capiota or or some sense of um, uh, sort of a South American, you know, a Brazilian dance. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, you, I mean, you see it, right? A capoeira. Excuse me, I say capiola. Um, you know, and you can you and you see it, and so it's not far fetched then for us professors to come in and say, well, I mean, we understand the African slave trade. Over half of slaves stopped in Brazil, right? And so, yeah. I mean, you have to look at the ways in which Afro-Brazilian culture, and and, and 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 even there in Venezuela and and Peru and those areas that are heavily congregated by African people, uh, then moves itself up through, you know, um, through you know the you know the Spanish rule as they found themselves in the Canary Islands and all over the you know uh, what we call the sort of the Caribbean right and then obviously you know moving its way up to North America so all these are cultural remnants right they didn't even come out of the sky right these yeah. are cultural remnants aesthetically that we have to deal with and and then I think lastly we talk about you know, the issues of metaphysics, how do we come to know God, how do we come to know the soul, how do we come to experience ourselves as something that that is not just material but spiritual. I think hip hop speaks to that as a as a as a as a sort of 
a, a, um, a, a, a reality of spirit, right? The great uh, KRS-One, who called the sort of the teacher, the uh, the philosopher of hip hop, talks about hip hop as a metaphysic, right? I mean, I have some challenges with that, but I understand what he's saying. He's saying that when you adopt hip hop as a way of being, right, it becomes what the metaphysics, you know, the uh, the metaphysicians call first principle reality, and so you breathe hip hop, you 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 sort of ingest and digest hip hop the same way we breathe and ingest and digest air, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is that is why it's bigger than just dance and, and so they always ask in, in, in classes, well, can white people be uh, uh do hip hop? Can can Asians do hip hop blah blah? I said I mean to do hip hop is one thing. To be hip hop is another, right? And so we can do. I mean, we, trust me. We we experience all aspects of of sort of imitative culture, right? But it's not to say it's inauthentic. It's just to say that hey, well, I mean, we see things that we like, and we do those things, and it becomes real to them. But we cannot take away the nascent reality, the sort of the born reality of what it means to live within a social, political, uh, and racial context that that hip-hop comes from. Yeah. It's amazing uh, how much we, we, we could talk about this. And, um, and you know, it's so interesting as well. And believe it or not, it, it is everything that we're saying, as foreign as hip-hop could be to a little girl in Maracaibo City in the Caribbean mm. <laughs> in mm. Venezuela, it is actually um, so uh, close yes. as well. Yes. And um, it's just a big cultural mesh that the world has become with globalization. And even each war, um, uh, each war that we have in the world uh, throughout history will actually uh, create all this opportunity for cultural exchange. Because when the soldiers go to a place they have been locked up, you know, all they come with their culture. Right. And... Um, right. So after so many years of this, you would think that there would be harmony in the cultures, and um, and yet we we are still battling uh, cultures that are different from ours. Why is that? Um, what do you think that it? You know, in America politics, for example, we have so many racial issues, and it's mm. it's really it's an institution. I think racial issues are within the institutions. Um, and my daughter said something that um, we were arguing about it uh, a couple of days ago. She said that she believes that people don't sin. They actually, uh, there's no sin for people. The sin comes from the institutions, and though changing institutions will fix everything. Mm-hmm. And and I and I find that very deep and at the same time very naive mm-hmm. because the institutions are made what we make of them. About people, right? I mean, so it's, is a such a, it's such a, a close circle. Right. You know, so your daughter so, must have read some marks at some point. Yeah, so yeah, so do you think there could be a, that is achievable some cultural harmony so that everybody can uh, have the same opportunities and the right. same? I mean, is that even achievable in the world now? Right, right. Wow, uh, um, that really is a tough, tough question. Right. So I think I think that you know we have to. Um, we have to ask who truly wants America to be at its highest potential socially, right? Mm-hmm. And then I, and you know, because I do think that you know we have to address then, you know, a confronting bias and promoting equality and 
addressing hypocrisy, for instance, right, and ensuring that, you know, all Americans, in this case, irrespective of race, class, gender, or even sexual orientation, can live without, right, the, the threat of its government and the threat of its legislators uh, to exact violence upon them, right, whether that's physical violence, psychic violence, spiritual violence, right, who can I, who can I love, who can I work, where can I worship, you know, what can I, you know, how can I walk upon the street, you know, the, the various just, just sort of human, you know, realities that, that, that certain people within the American context can't take for granted and others mm-hmm. can. So I think that when we talk about harmony, we have to first talk about being honest with ourselves, realizing that uh, we, we have, you know, we can't ignore our biases, right? We can't ignore what we think about when we look at people of color, right? I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a PhD, I have a good education, and I still have, I have friends who are of various races, not just, you know, white or anything. I have students who come from other, who, even blacks, quite frankly, who would say, well, depending on where they're from, you know, you can, you know, trust them. Or, or I have an Ethiopian student, she is so sweet, and she told me, she said, you know, the one thing that, again, it's Ethiopia, right? It's Africa, right? So I have an Ethiopian student who said that one thing that her dad said before she came to America was just not to fall in love with an American black guy, right? So you start well, thinking, from Ethiopia, <laughs> right? So you start thinking like, well, dang, you know. So <laughs> it becomes a international reality. There's something about being black in this American context that creates disease and unease among not just folk in America, but folk across the world. And so when you have, for instance, Mayor De Blasio in New York who has a white wife, I mean a black wife, he's a white man, who has a black wife and has a mixed kid, and then he tells New York as mayor that he has to sit down with his son and have serious conversations about how to deal with the police. Right, that's a real conversation that yeah. that, that parents of of of, of students of, of children of color have to have, and then instead of uh, of the New York police folks understanding that reality, they then blast De Blasio, turn their back on him, say that throwing the police under the bus, and I'm like, no, he's being a father, right? It's yeah. there there are certain real things, right? I know police officers personally. And this is where the hypocrisy comes in. Because I know police officers personally who would tell their children don't go in certain neighborhoods because those N-words, those other people are crazy. Right? Yeah. So again, don't act like there's something wrong with us, with, with, with people telling the truth about the fact that we have these biases. I mean, I will tell a girl on campus, right, uh, uh, to make sure that if you're walking you know, across campus at night to walk in twos or threes, right? And we'll have that conversation very openly, right? But we, but, 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 but we won't have a conversation, you know, talking about, you know, the different gazes, if you will, that, that people have about people of color, right? I mean, we have to have that conversation. And so yeah. I, I think in order for harmony to take place, truth have to take place and understanding that it's not you know and making a difference too between people who are just you know just buttholes if you will and people who are racist right i mean not all not i mean even though all races are buttholes not all buttholes are racist <laughs> right and so you know so 
some people are just ignorant. Some people are just buttholes. Some people are just like mean. You know what I'm saying? And their meanness might or might not have to do with with with, with racial antipathy, right? So we so we can't just sweep everything with a broad brush and say everything is race and racism. But at the same time, we cannot decry that. Oh, well, I'm not going to take it seriously because you're quote unquote pulling the race card. And so in this book, for instance, I have these conversations. Uh, especially in Chapter 2 and Chapter 3, I had these conversations about how America, who thought with with Obama, who thought that now we're going to live this sort, of, uh, 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 this sort of new life, right, this sort of post-racial reality, and something about Obama then was sort of, uh, 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 you know, we won't consider race anymore as a social practice because, mm-hmm. hey, we got a black president and we have a black first lady with black children, you know, that kind of stuff. But what have we seen since then? We, you know, we've seen more hatred upon yeah. the White House. We've seen people talking about the black children just, just recently, right? Fox News had to, quote, unquote, admit that, look, we have to take down our, our, our story about Malia going to Harvard because somehow, some way, these bad there are some bad comments on our site about about racist comments on our site, as if they're shocked, right? <laughs> as if somehow or another, this just started today, right? And it's like, wait, what are you talking about, right? So, it's a, so I think that really America, in, in order to get to where you, be, you know, where you're talking about, I'm again, I'm a harbinger of hope primarily because, you know, I'm a Christian, right? That, that's that's the first thing, right? Uh, but at the same time, I'm not calling for a utopia, right? I don't think that we'll live. You know, I still think, like St. Augustine said in his book, In City of God, I think, I mean, we, we still sort of live in a city of sin, right? And so uh, uh, your daughter, I mean, I would love to have a conversation with her, but you're right. I mean, people make up institutions, right? Institutions, though, uh, you know, are do protect other people. Right, and so these institutions are created. For instance, the police. Right, people say, "Well, the police, all police officers aren't racist." Okay, fine, no problem. We have no problem with that, right? But the structure, the institution of the police force, intentionally uh, is created in order, historically and today, in order to sort of create a sort of a, um, a sort of an overseeing of primarily inner city, primarily urban people, and that comes into being with our our, our criminal justice system, right? Mm-hmm. It comes into being with you know, you know, you know with the ways in which we see. I mean, the federal government, right? This this federal government has then you know put 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 cities on notice: Chicago, Baltimore, Ferguson. And said, look, we're we're reviewing your tickets. We're reviewing the way in which you exact justice mm-hmm. in your criminal courts, and you are doing it wrong, and you're doing it uh, in a way that exploits black people. And people say, wait a minute, how can you say that? Well, it's easy to say if a, if a, if a town like Ferguson that, 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 that has like 20,000, 25,000 people in an area of St. Louis County, if that area then constitutes 85% of the income of your court of your court systems, something is wrong. What? It, why aren't you policing the other eighty percent of the county? Yeah. Right. So yeah. I mean, so you think, and then when when the kids of Ferguson uprise and they say, you know, you're mistreating us, you know, we think they're crazy, but they're not crazy. They live this. They live the fact that every day they're being harassed and every day they're being, you know, uh, mistreated and, and and getting ticketed and fined for 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 stuff that that makes no sense in order to fund uh, 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 
a, a city when you got 80% of the other part of the county that doesn't even see a police officer, right? Yeah, it is and so true. it's like, what's wrong with this? So I think we have to speak, you know, speak the truth to that, Susan. I think so. Part of that, uh, and, and, you know, has to do with, I think you said about the idea of hope. And I think I'm a, I'm a harbinger of hope. Uh, again, I'm not calling for utopia, but I think I am calling for civility and compassion, especially when it comes to our lawmakers. I think that there will be so many things, uh, even if it doesn't touch the lawmakers, just by the regular people showing more compassion and more love. Uh, I mean, if if I raise a child and that child, and I raise it with love and showing them compassion and teach him that we have all the same heart, uh, and that person becomes a policeman in, in urban... New York, uh, you know, I mean, that will be uh, somebody that hopefully will not be corrupted by the system. Yeah. And know? that's why your daughter has a point, though, right? Because yeah. and that that's individual what... still has to lose exactly. that culture of the police force, right? But and... then they go to a place where an institution has its ways, and, you know, we see, we, we all go through it in school. Right. You right. know, we, no go, we come out of the house one way, and we come back from school a different way. No question. You know, so it's sad. But um, as long as we have hope, I guess, you know, um, there is a possibility of things uh, changing, hopefully in our lifetime. I think <laughs> you know, so. You know? And the beauty about being a democracy, right, is that, like you said, I mean, the, you know, the people do have the ability to make these changes, right? You know, and so, and given that America's still young, right, as, you know, we talk about this as if we're Rome or something, right? So, I mean, the reality is that we're young, right? And so, as a young country, we're still learning. We're still trying to understand what it means to be a, a democracy. And, and, and so, as such, this is an experiment, right? We're trying to get this a democracy thing right, right? After what I like to call, you know, starting behind a, a moral eight ball, right? I mean, we started with imperial and slavery, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it's hard to kind of get get away from that if that was literally the foundation of this country, right? And so, and it's definitely not going to eradicate itself in the short time, you know, not even 400 years uh, yet of our existence, if you will. Um, you know, I can keep talking until tomorrow about this. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you've noticed, but <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, I, I, I think we passed thirty minutes. Right? I really love it. Um, uh, before we go, I want to tell our uh, listeners again: check out Racial Realities and Post Racial Dreams. It's an awesome book. It will wake you up, and um, you know, you just spell it as it is, and it's very understandable to. Uh, people like me that, you know, I do have, even though I also write in English and whatever, I do have a handicapping English. <laughs> mm. And, um, it, you know, I've, uh, I, I, it, I, it, it, it's wonderful, understandable for regular people. Thank you. And um, it should be read. Thank you. You can check it out at www.juliusbailey.com. And, again, that is J-U-L-I-U-S-B-A-I-L. EY.com. Julius, thank you so much for being here. This was such an interesting conversation, and I look forward to talking to you again. I thank you, Jesus. All right, listeners, thank you again for being with us, and until next time. Bye.